Hey listeners, do you enjoy movies? So do we. And that's why we record Nerds on Film, our weekly podcast where it's just us sitting around making jokes and talking movies. In fact, if you guys have not subscribed to that already, you really should. I'll wait. Have you done it yet? You haven't? What is wrong with you? You're super lazy, right? Jeez, we made it really easy. You just go to nerdonomy.com and you click the freaking iTunes button. Stop procrastinating and go do it. Thank you. Last time on Nerds on History, Eric and Brian talked about the Pope. But the time before that, they went hardcore on Egypt. Eric, what the hell are we doing in the World War II foxhole? Well, you know that TARDIS that I bought off eBay? Yeah. It doesn't really work. Hey, I'm, I'm scared. It's, it's okay. Oh, God. <laughs> Yeah? Did you know that in the Great Pyramids of Giza? Oh, God. Uh, the, the outer stones, the, the casing stones. Yes. They're, they're quarried, quarried elsewhere. Quickly, we don't have much time. I know, I know. There's a place called... Tura. Tura Limestone. It's, uh, it's nice stuff. Oh, really? Yeah. It's actually quite fascinating. It is, isn't it? Welcome to Nerds on History. I am Eric Brickmont. And I am Brian Moriarty. Eric, thank God we got out of that one. That was a close one. That was probably our closest, our most dangerous episode of Nerds on History we've ever done. I would think if I have to rate that as far as like most terrifying moments of my life, that's a number two. Yeah. What was what was number one? Seeing aliens for the first time. God, you gotta get over that phobia. You know what? I'm gonna take you back in time. No, you're and not. <laughs> you can just be there when Ridley Scott is, you know directing the first one and i think you'll feel much better from the other side of the camera no i'm not <laughs> i can tell you that right now i am happy we got the tardis fixed though because i am too because there we was a moment there otherwise where we were on the battlefield and i wasn't sure if it was a tank or herman goering that was coming after us but <laughs> i was i was absolutely terrified but we made it through the whole episode what are you guys doing <laughs> we're doing a podcast on history what is this our podcast <laughs> <laughs> you talk about history what, what, what parts of history Egypt. Oh, I find history very fascinating. I find Egypt very fascinating. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> he was a strange uh, one. Every German I do sounds like the guy from Laughing. Very interesting. <laughs> but stupid. But stupid. <laughs> so, if you are not old enough to know what Laughing is, look it up. Because it's uh, and some if, classic comedy. And if you are German and listen to this, we're sorry. <laughs> very much so. Um... In all seriousness, how you doing? I'm great after that cold open. That was a lot of fun. That was a lot of fun. <laughs> it was. How are you doing? I'm great. Yeah? Yeah, I'm excellent. You I just got back from vacation, right? I did. Well, uh, we, we say vacation. Yeah. It was a staycation. Yeah. Uh, I, don't, I don't really get an opportunity to go on vacation. My wife and I, we get away once a year for like our anniversary, but... It was, it was good. You had a moment to, to relax. To, it was a retreat. It was a yeah. self-imposed retreat. Yeah, we took the kids yeah. to uh, to the Monterey Bay Aquarium. Which was, I heard was a lot of fun. A lot of fun. We were there for like five hours kids were just you know wouldn't want to leave but we uh we got them out with a trip to the gift shop that always does the trick that always does the trick definitely and uh martha and i uh took a lovely day trip to uh the mission at san juan batista oh great and yeah. uh you know ironic me being 
not exactly the most religious person in the world, but I really enjoy religious architecture of all yeah. types. Well, it's a really fascinating historical um, site, you know, and the fact that they still have the employees dress in the historical garb, and it's a fun little thing. You get to see it. Well, at least that's, I mean, I once was a there long time once ago. Once a month every Sunday. Yeah. Or no, every, well, one, once every Saturday, that's right. Yeah, but nevertheless, like, you get to see history as close as you can, because you're, it's a largely untouched facility. I mean, yeah. they had to, re- of course, keep it up with with time. But well, Martha and I decided that we're going to hit all 21 missions in wow. California before the end of next year. Crap, I wish I was able to go with you on one of those. <laughs> well, tag along on one of them. Okay. Absolutely. I've got 21 of them. I mean, we and, can share one. You know, can I just say real quick that I'm still riding on, on a high from the live Oscar podcast we did a couple oh, days ago. Oh, man, that was a lot of fun. That was so much fun. Okay, so folks, if you didn't get a chance to listen, you can uh, download... Uh, this week's episode of, uh, or sorry, next week's episode. Last week's. Last week's episode. I don't know. I, I'm still screwed up from that TARDIS, Dan. Yeah. <laughs> uh, last week's episode of Nerds on Film, where you can then play the uh, whole episode against you know, a DVR'd version of, of the Oscars, or, or a streamed yeah. version of the Oscars. Yeah. We cut out for commercials sometimes, but not always, so you might have to fast-forward through a little bit until you get back to the start of the show, yeah. but um, it's really easy to sync yeah. up. We, we actually are pretty much synced up throughout the entire broadcast, and we ended right when the broadcast ended, too. So you, you pretty much, if you're about 10, maybe like 10, 15 seconds off... Right, because there was a little bit of a delay. There was a delay when we did it, but we, we weren't actually... The, the GarageBand file that we did was perfectly synced. So the one that's going to be on iTunes is fine. If you go to our the website, mixler.com, M-A-X-L-R.com, forward slash Nerdonomy, you can download the file that's already up there of right. our live broadcast. And that one you'll have to pause for about 10, 15 seconds, or if you're going to have point. DVR. Good point. The Oscars. But it was, it was a whole lot of fun. It was a whole lot of fun. And it was our first ever live broadcast. It was kind of yeah. exhilarating. And we had everybody in the room on a mic, too. And that Absolutely. was the first time that's ever happened. You know, it, totally. And it was it was really, really fun. All five of us in the same place. We haven't done that since the uh, Christmas episode, right? Right. Because Satorius was there for Christmas. Minus, of course, Sean, who was there in right. the presence of chat. Yes. So we, we include him, even though, unfortunately, he wasn't on mic. Well, that was the cool part, because we got to interact with our listeners for the first time, be it people who were as far away as New York, um, who were listening in. Uh, my parents, who live in Colorado, were there. My cousin, who lives in Southern California, was listening in. Yeah, was, I had a lot of friends and family, too. Yeah. And we had listeners who, were, who had joined us uh, who had heard the advertisements on, on the podcast. So yeah. thank you if you listened, and thank you for listening if you want to download it and uh, play it to the Oscars. Absolutely. And um, the reason I didn't even bring that up is because I think it'd be kind of fun if we do an on-location episode oh, for, for Nerds sure. on History. Now that we have the technology to do it, we should figure out a place to do it from. Maybe one of the missions. Maybe one of the missions, exactly. we got all these really cool historical places nearby. We could, we could do something easy. Um, also, a little bit of cleaning house if we could. We've gotten some listener feedback the past couple uh, days, and I wanted to share one of them. This is actually from our new venue that we have through the site directly. Uh, you can now go to uh, the nerdonme.com homepage, and there's a listener feedback button you can click on there to give us direct. And I wanted to give one right away from Bree. Uh, she wanted to shout out, and so ask, and you shall receive. And it's related to Egypt, so I thought, <gasps> why not bring it up? Ooh. Her comment is uh, this. I haven't made it through the entire backlog of Nerds on History podcast episodes yet, but I have a suggestion. At some point in indulging in Egyptology, can you give us a look at some of my favorite historical nerds, the savants who accompanied Napoleon on his Egyptian campaign and founded uh, Institut d'Egypte? Uh, probably saying that totally wrong, but uh, <laughs> but it, it works. She wrote it in French, so uh, I happen to think they'd fill an entire podcast by themselves, especially if you look at the individual characters 
But if you could use the uh, Institute to segue into Egyptian archaeology as a whole, just a thought. Love the podcast, of course. Bree in Illinois. Bree, thank you so much for your input. We always are appreciative. And uh, we have one more, two from Nathan. Nathan is from Dublin, Ireland. Oh, Holy yeah. crap. We just went continental. Uh, well, it's not our first European listener, but dude, so excited to have you listening on our show. He just says, hey guys, just want to say I love both podcasts. Listening all the way from Dublin, would love a mention on either podcast. Keep up the great work. Thank you. Again, Nathan asking, you shall receive. You just got your shout out, dude. Nathan, Bree, thank you very much, both of you. Uh, for listening and supporting Nerds on History and Nerds on Film. Uh, we have so much fun doing what we do. I don't think there's more satisfying a time than when we get listener feedback. Totally. It um, is so uh, invigorating and exhilarating to us. It, it is, especially when we see something as far away as a place like Ireland, because it shows yeah. that really we are starting to reach out across the world, and that's such a crazy idea to think. We should go to Ireland and perhaps crash uh, Nathan's house... You know, I've always wanted um, to go to Dublin. You know, hey, Nathan, if you have more than one couch, uh, we would be very happy to to uh, crash your pad, and you could show us around one of the, uh, the most iconic <laughs> cities in the world. And uh, we'll do. We'll even have you on the podcast. We'll do a live podcast with, with you on it. Or not a live, well, on-location podcast with you on it. And, uh, and yeah. It's a bit forward of us, but I think, you know what, let's... <laughs> Considering we just met the guy. Shut up, Brian. I want to go to Ireland. <laughs> I do too, but we can do it in a different way. All right. Uh, all right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but again, in all seriousness, thank you very much, guys, for your, for your feedback. Absolutely. Well, Brian, uh, of course, listener feedback is meant for us to listen to and sometimes indeed follow. What better way to segue into today's topic uh, than to listen to exactly what Bree had suggested and uh, let this be our segue back into Egypt? Because, of course, we talked about Egypt previously on our Gilligan's Egypt Part 1. And, uh, you know, of course, the Pope being the Pope, we had to kind of take a break on this momentous event in history and talk about it. Now we're ready to come back to Egypt. And Egypt, for a very long time, remained very mysterious. Uh, there was mis- this mystique in the Western world around this exotic land. And it really wasn't until the expeditions, uh, military expeditions, led by Napoleon into Egypt, that the Western world got a really prime opportunity to not just record the history they were seeing around them, but but do it in a way that had never been before performed. Because there had been many expeditions from folks from around the world who had visited Egypt before that, in that in, within that realm, within that time, you know, from like the 1400s on. But very few had had all the tools they needed and all the time they needed and all the safety and security to conduct a really in-depth and thorough investigation. Right, because... They had never been able to excavate the pyramids or any of the tombs. It was almost like they had felt that this was a period that was lost to yeah. time. and a lot of them were uh, explorers traveling in small groups, limited by time, money, or disease, yeah. or uh, just didn't really have the safety and security they needed to travel around in a country they didn't know. Right. But this is also true of all our archaeology, because, I mean, archaeology as a field didn't really catch on until the late 18th century, early 19th century. I'm just thinking about how there was the fascination with the, with the Greeks, too. Yes. And uh, this is around the same time period in area in history. That's very true. And that's very true. And, you know, what better opportunity then uh, with this expedition to Egypt than to bring along some of the most talented, skilled, and really sophisticated minds of the time? 160 of France's greatest scholars were brought along with Napoleon. And these so-called savants were there to catalog, record, and in many ways act as the first archaeologists proper 
in Egypt. Uh, and thanks to them, we have thousands of thousands of these beautiful plates that have come back that have given us this glimpse back into a time really not that long ago, but a very different time in Egypt. Because since then, Egypt has changed dramatically. And many of these iconic monuments that these artists that were brought along were sketching and drawing don't exist anymore today. Just in a period of a few hundred years, uh, we've lost many of them, whether they be to conflicts and wars, uh, including the war in which they were uh, a part of, uh, or they be uh, from cultural dynamic shifts that happen in the country or what have you. You find that uh, the Egypt 200 years ago is a different Egypt to, from the one today. And of course, you know, they brought along these, these incredible people who we just don't have time to go into proper. I mean, we could spend multiple episodes discussing some of the, the greatest minds that were there. But um, just to kind of set the precedent, uh, I may be saying his last name wrong, so correct me if you know it, uh, but Gaspard Mange, who was the, the president of this, uh, of this society that was, that was constructed uh, to, to lead this expedition, uh, himself was a genius. Uh, he was the father of, of modern geometry. Uh, and so the way that we ourselves draw and lay out geometric shapes uh, today and the science behind it is owed to this gentleman uh, who had a long and prestigious career who was very much a, a key intellectual figure during the uprisings of the French Revolution uh, who unfortunately had kind of a uh, falling out, as you can imagine, after the, uh, uh, the deposing of Napoleon and his exile. But before that, uh, he was put in charge in kind of his latter years at the Institut d'Egypte uh, to be the one to overlook this entire expedition and all of the people who were involved in it, and to guarantee that it's uh, it's safety and survival. And they were, you know, centered right there in Egypt. I mean, they were in the outskirts of Cairo, in you know the old palace of uh, Hassan Kassif. Uh, and so you find that they had this whole country to themselves, and they could pretty much go and do whatever they wanted. Uh, and it's just, uh, it's an incredible time. And this is a time, of course, when they discover the Rosetta Stone. These were the right. people who were key and integral in, in making sure that uh, engravings and and copies of the Rosetta Stone were being sent back as quickly as possible to Europe so they could be studied uh, by, the, by the minds there. And good thing they did so, because, uh, you know, after the loss of the French fleet and, uh, you know, this, the famous sea battle with uh, Lord Nelson, he found that they were very much depleted in terms of resources. And uh, they did not have as many proper tools as they really needed to continue with the expedition proper. And so they started gathering up small items, knowing that the their time there could soon be over, and uh, began smuggling them back and getting them past the, the British as they started to exit Egypt in 1801 after Napoleon had essentially lost the war. And one of the items they could not bring back, of course, was the Rosetta Stone. It was just too big to sure. get past the British, and the British ended up taking it back to the British Well, we saw museum. a replica of it at the Rosicrucian Museum. We did. And was that a scale model, or was that an actual, like, full-size replica? Yeah, it was... It was uh, it, I don't believe it's quite full-size. It's very Nevertheless, close, though. it was pretty damn big, if it was a shrunken model anyway, because it was at least three or four feet tall. Oh, it's a massive three or four granite feet wide, slab. And it must have been a couple, at least, at least a, several hundred pounds. To oh, yeah, it's huge. It, it's a massive granite slab. And uh, the inscriptions on it are really, truly the most important part. And so the fact that they were able to get those rubbings and send them off really saved the French in terms of their dominance of Egyptian archaeology and history. Uh, of course, the, the volume that they would construct 
uh, this description of Egypt, as they would call it, took over 20 years to compile because they had so much information that they had gained from this expedition uh, that they were releasing it piece by piece in journals and, and newspapers, but they had eventually compiled and released it almost 20 years later. The first volume came about. Wow. It's really extraordinary how much, how much information they had gathered. And you can find much of it uh, today on the bookshelves of many uh, bookstores. There are some of the finest plates have been chosen and selected, and um, their, their work was uh, unprecedented for the time. Yeah. I would love to highlight some of the other figures uh, who were key and uh, essential to our understanding of the Egyptian history today, but I don't really want to focus on that for the whole podcast. Because like no. I said, we could talk about it for a long time. That's fine, but you've, you've addressed it to a degree, and it's definitely one that I'm interested in now that I would like to address later on. But actually, something you said last week really, really interested me, uh, which was uh, when we were talking about the popes, and uh, I was explaining what his function is in the church. You were saying, you know, I hate to bring it back to Egypt, but all these connections to Osiris are very, very interesting. And that got me interested, because you also said that in our previous episode, that a pharaoh is the embodiment of Osiris, right? Correct. Well, in a way, he's he's more properly the embodiment of Horus. Of Horus, who is the son of Osiris. Who is the son of Osiris, yes. right. Because as the pharaoh, you were kind of the son of the gods. Of god. Exactly. Yeah. You yeah. yourself were a living god, and that when you died, you became Osiris. You did this transition, yeah. and you were reborn, resurrected, if you will. The, the Egyptian mythos really didn't have a, a concept of a demigod, right? That was more of a Greek... That's very much a Greek uh, idea and concept. The The idea of gods and humans coming together was only really shown with the mythos surrounding the king, surrounding the pharaoh. Okay. Uh, in fact, you see examples in uh, one figure of one that we'll talk about today in her tomb, uh, not her tomb, but her mortuary temple, uh, that of Hapshatsut. She is seen actually in a fetal state, and she's being molded as clay on the potter's wheel of the god Kanum. And he was the god responsible for pregnancy and inserting, uh, impregnating, and, and fertility. Fertility. Thank you. Uh, and so you actually see her being formed into existence and created at this point. So the gods are creating her, and then she is shown born and as a child. <laughs> Can I make a nerd reference for a second? Let's do it. That's how Wonder Woman came into existence. <laughs> Wonder Woman was. Wonder uh, Woman was created by Kanum. No. Oh, not quite. Not quite. <laughs> Because uh, she was of Greek, uh, well, Themyscira is in the Hellenized world, but uh, she was. The story is that Hippolyta, who uh, I believe there was actually was a there was a mythological character named Hippolyta as well. She had sculpted a clay statue of a of a young baby girl, and she had wanted a child of her own. She did not have her own children, and the clay statue came to life, and. And Pinocchio was born. <laughs> you can draw that analogy, too. But I think Wonder Woman's a little more badass than Pinocchio. I don't know. We never yeah. saw Pinocchio, too. The, there is that interesting truth parallel, because Wonder Woman's yeah. lasso yeah. was... And it actually came because William Marston, Moulton Marston was the inventor of the polygraph. So he had this oh. fascination with people telling the truth. Well, I think we just proved why we're nerds on history. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Indeed. Getting back to what you were saying, though. So that's, that's the closest that you really find a demigod connection, right? The pharaohs were considered to have been part god, if you will. Right. And they but were born was, of the gods. Greeks had almost a hierarchy. We're saying you were in between god and man. And right. that was less true with the Egyptians. There was gods and there was men, but they were not necessarily mutually exclusive. Correct. Right. Very, very true. Okay. 
I get it. I get it. When we were taking a civics, civics class when I was starting college, there is a whole lecture they had, because we basically talk about all ancient history in one semester. Obviously a monumental task to do, but they do a couple lectures on Egypt, and they talk about from king to pharaoh. I was under the impression there was no distinction between king and pharaoh, and according to you, there is no distinction either. Well, I guess it really depends on what, you're, what you mean. Um, when I think of a king, I think of a ruling monarch, and I think of a clear line of succession that is hereditary, right? So it's based on your descendants, your direct descendants, or those that you have adopted into that role. Okay. And that's exactly what the Egyptian pharaohs did. It was a monarchy, and that's how we describe the Egyptian pharaoh as a king. I don't really see much of a distinction between the two besides the fact that the pharaohs of Egypt were considered to be very godly, right? They were considered to have been gods in that right. They had a very um, specific job within the religious realm of Egypt, whereas in many of the monarchies of Europe, the king and religious leaders were kept separate, maybe working together, but were kept as very separate roles for the most part. Whereas in Egypt, they were one. The yeah. king was the high priest of the entire country. Which is fascinating, because again, you make, I can see even more so that connection between the Pope now. But even not just the Pope, with, with a lot of monarchs, because in Europe, for a long period of time, because I mean, there's not many monarchies left in Europe, but there is this belief, it became pretty much a belief that now, if the king was in place, it was because of the will of God. Right. And there was a point in time in the during the Dark Ages that your throne was not validated unless you were coronated by the Pope. Right. Right. Now you had We talked about that, yeah. Yeah, you, you had the seal of approval, right? So I see this kind of interesting parallel uh, between and maybe maybe it's not as parallel as we think, maybe it just derives from this this very idea to begin with, um, that you tie your politics with your with your faith. And that's so unusual to us because we live in a culture that is makes a very distinct separation between right, our faith it, and our politics. In ancient Egypt, it, that was the way of life. Yeah. Everything was so ingrained with their religious beliefs that uh, every action they had, including the governing of their own country, was directly connected to, to their beliefs of what would happen uh, mm-hmm. upon their death. And, you know, it, it's one reason why I, I think I love Egypt so much is because it has this draw to it. Here is this country, this civilization that existed for thousands of years, relatively unchecked. They had their hardships, they had their troubles, but for the most part, they existed in this near-perfect state of continuity. Of stasis, if you were. Yeah, and it's so fascinating to see how the culture was able to evolve and change, yet stay very much the same. But for me, ultimately, it's the things that we don't really have a lot of light shed on that just have always fascinated me. And I think that's why... In particular, I love so much of the earliest history of Egyptian culture, the stuff that is so little known about. And I can think of a really great example. Have you ever heard of the pharaoh Kaha Sekemwe? Never in my life. I wouldn't be surprised. about two hours ago. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. I told you about him a little bit earlier. Yeah, but that's all you said. You didn't really mention what he did. Kaha Sekemwe was a pharaoh who was of paramount importance to the Egyptians. Okay, why? He laid down a foundation... And not just a, a foundation for future architectural Is that a sculpture? That's a sculpture. The first pharaoh to be shown in a sculpted likeness. You don't really find any of these sculptures existing on pharaohs before this. Wow. And who does he look like? The Pope. He looks exactly <laughs> like the Pope. He's got, his pointed hat is very miter-like. Well, that so. is the Atef. And the Atef yeah. is the crown of... Uh, well, and actually, in this particular case, it's just the uh, 
the crown of, of Upper Egypt, the, the kind of bowling pin-shaped one. Right, there's the, the smaller one was when they had united the country together, correct? Well, there were two crowns, the red crown and the white crown. The white crown, which looks kind of like a bowling pin, was for uh, Upper Egypt, which was located in the south of the country. And the one that was kind of the what... Like a chair. Almost, yeah. The red one, which was the one that, that surrounded it, right. w- was for Lower Egypt. And that existed as its own separate crown. In fact, on the on the Palette of Narmer, one of the earliest depictions we see of a of a pharaoh on a, a funerary item, or not, well, in this case a ceremonial uh, plate used for mixing cosmetics, you find that uh, on one side, he's the king of Upper Egypt with a, with a bowling pin crown. On the other side... He's the king of Lower yeah. Egypt. So there's still this very clear distinction between the two. And perhaps even more so in this time period, approximately 200 or so years later. This was a time where there was a schism that had formed in the country. And we know very little about it for the very true fact that Egyptians didn't like writing about the bad stuff. Of course. They loved to record their victories. I know, right? Yeah. Uh, they loved to record their victories. They loved to record times of prosperity. And the only time they ever really talk about bad times is when they're referencing a time that was so much worse than it was right now. So mm-hmm. that time was considered to be good. And in this case, we it's, have... It's the triumph. It's yeah. them saying, oh, things were so awful, but look at us now. Exactly. Yeah. And so now you have this figure like Kahasek Hemway who's dealing with not just a, a civil war, but a theological war. So we talk about Horus, and we talk about him being centered on the kingship, but there was another god who, during the Second Dynasty, the predecessors of Kahasakemwe, many of them chose to worship as their primary deity associated with kingship, and this is the god Set. Okay. So Set, in Egyptian mythology, post this time period, was a bad guy. He was a negative force. He was a god of chaos. He was a god of the desert, barren wasteland. He was this kind of anti-figure to the Osiris-Horus mythology, which was this um, triumphant, victorious, ruling figure, right? Kind of, kind of a, a Loki-Hades Very similar. figure. Very similar. You can draw a lot of parallels there. But at this time, he was just another god. And he was a god that was worshipped by this particular sect that had pharaohs who were in charge. Interesting. So we know this for a couple different reasons. One, we find that when the pharaoh's name was written during this time period, it was not in a cartouche. Do you know what a cartouche is? I think we talked about this in the last episode. We oh, talked about it. I know we brought it up at the museum, too. Um, refresh our audience, please. It is a, a circular formation that surrounds the hieroglyphs that makes up the pharaoh's name. And it's normally allowed to elongate to accommodate however long the pharaoh's name was. I would, If you had said cartouche, I usually say, God bless you. <laughs> but that's <laughs> Well, tie back to the French and tie back to the Rosetta Stone. Uh, the savants are the ones who coined the term. Uh, cartouche literally means cartridge in okay. French. And so, because they thought that the cartouches they were seeing on the monuments looked like the soldiers' gun cartridges, the name just kind of stuck. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. Uh, it all comes back together, doesn't it? It all it, comes full circle. It does. But you'll find that this is pre-cartouche. So, how were the pharaohs writing their names? Well, they used what was called a serac. And a serac was a palace facade. It was a little walled-off section of the palace that had a very distinct design on it. And it was signifying the pharaoh's rule, because obviously he lived in the palace. And surmounting the serac was an icon representing Horus. And this had been done since the very first pharaohs. But now it was different. Now the followers of Set had their kings with a set animal on top. I call it a set animal because nobody knows what this animal really was. If you see images of Set, he looks like an aardvark. With, <laughs> a, 
Seriously. He looks like an aardvark with these uh, bizarre ears that are like flat and he was, on top. And he was the god of mischief? He was the god of chaos. The aardvark of chaos. I'm, I'm sorry. Like, I kind of have this image of this little boy who's got the, the body of a human but the head of an aardvark. <laughs> and him just being picked on by the other gods. <laughs> And just all his anger and bitterness just turned him into this bully of a. Oh, Here, I'm going to show you right now. That's what he looks like. <laughs> right, he kind of looks like an aardvark, right? Yeah, it does. Yeah. So you know, please feel free as listening to this to Google uh, a picture of Set uh, or yeah. Seth, depending on how you want to pronounce it. He still it. looks very powerful, very imposing, even though he's got the face of an aardvark. Yeah, or yeah. whatever it is. Right, we don't know exactly now. It's a stretch. It could look less like a like a zebra face too. It, it's no. There's been no numbers of guesses. Or, no number of different guesses. No number of different guesses that have been put out there to suggest what it could be. But that's beside the point. <laughs> the closest is Aardvark. We'll the just go with it. Aardvark. It's also the funniest it suggestion is, yeah. out there, too. Even though there were no Aardvarks in Egypt as far as we know. <laughs> <laughs> so here we have these totally different followers of a totally different god who were essentially looking to take over this traditional belief that had been set up by the Egyptians now. And we know that there was war. We don't have a whole lot of evidence, right? Because they didn't like to write about all the bad stuff. Right. But we do have fragments of pottery. It's actually a stone vase. Uh, we find inscribed on it, the year of fighting the northern enemy within the city of Neket. And then it goes on to reference the fact uh, that Kahasa Kemwe was said to have killed 47,209 northerners. That's a very specific number. And I believe it to be quite probably a very accurate number. This was most likely a very nasty and, and bloody little feud between these two sects who were looking 47, to control. 47,000, which at the time of the population of Egypt would have been a good number of people. I was going to say, because, I mean, if you look at the number of an army, too, when I think 50,000, that's huge. Well, I'm sure they didn't stop at just the army. Oh, I'm you sure think they, they killed they, civilians, They must have killed civilians as well. Okay. But it's interesting because Kahasa Kemwe, rather than now having this reputation as this bloodthirsty uh, put her down of a rebellion, uh, instead makes a rather interesting move. And he, on his Serek, changes it. Whereas in the beginning of his reign, he had the traditional Horus. Now he has both a Horus and a set animal atop his Serek. So, in a way, he's bringing both together. He's bringing both together. And you could... Um, are you referring to the, the symbols that are on the base of the crown? Uh, no, this is still just the, the the two symbols that were covering the name of the pharaoh at the time. Just the in the hieroglyphics. Okay, yeah, gotcha. just in the hieroglyphs. Gotcha. Uh, and so you can really assume a lot based off of that. We don't actually know how much of this is true. We're really just guessing because we don't have a lot much evidence besides what I've just described. Um, but we do know that he ended up marrying a northern princess. Uh -huh. um, she very likely became the mother of the next king in that in that line the father of the of the third dynasty uh zoser the one who would go on to build egypt's very first pyramid and it's no surprise that it would be his son who would build that pyramid because unfortunately again this is another uh feature of kahasa kemwe that's overlooked he was actually quite the prolific builder and at the time stonework was very very limited but he built more with stone than any of his other predecessors had and he constructed this massive massive mud brick compound that was kind of a prototype for a mortuary temple, a place where his soul would continue to be worshipped and cared for upon his, his death and, and the years uh, that would, proceed, that would uh, succeed it. And it is, uh, it's pretty big. 
It's 404 feet by 210 feet. Does it still stand today? Parts of it, remarkably, after 5,000 years, still stand today. It's one of the oldest known examples of Egyptian architecture to exist. Considering that the materials it was made out of, I mean, mud brick is fairly strong if the seasons are, are generous, but, you know, it's, it's not meant to last thousands of years. That's what they carved stone out of. It's not, stone but core. it is massive. The walls of this compound were, gosh, 30 feet thick. You know, they were, they were really big. And, of course, the whole compound doesn't really exist in its grandeur today. There's really just the mud brick walls that are, that are there. I'll show you a picture of it. But um, Nevertheless, it's yeah. Well, it's very dry in Egypt. And right. you don't get very much rain. You get extremely small amounts of rain, especially in Middle Egypt, where this is located, in this part of the country. You see practically zero rainfall uh, for, you know, 100-year periods at a time. Wow. Yeah. So the Nile would have been their sole source of water, basically. Pretty much. Yeah. He also had a rather large and extremely impressive tomb. And uh, these are all things that are sadly overlooked, just because there's not a whole lot that exists of Gahasa Kemwe to have him shine through history. And his son, Zoser, would go on to become such a more important figure because of his construction of the Step Pyramid that he would begin to overshadow his father for many, many years to come. He's kind of fallen into obscurity, but in ways he hasn't because of his influence. I'm keeping him alive. You're keeping him alive. <laughs> there you go. So who else in your mind stands out as some of the most important and the most significant rulers in Egypt? Well, I know that we had kind of teased this a little bit in the last episode. We talked about... Akhenaten at one point. We talked about Akhenaten, but we also talked about female rulers. Right. We talked about Nefertiti. That's correct. Uh, and, you know, the truth is, I, I, you, we could do a whole episode on just female rulers in general. I cannot feel like we should get the Egyptian part out of the way now, because it's actually a lot more substantial than people think. Sure. When you think of an Egyptian female ruler, besides Nefertiti, who else comes to mind? Cleopatra, basically. Cleopatra the Seventh, to be more specific. Very good, very yes, good. I did learn something from that, that <laughs> uh, museum field trip. That's true, Cleopatra. Yeah. But she was on the far end of Egyptian yeah, history. Yeah, she was at a point where the power of Egypt was far, far reduced. And really, she was more or less a figurehead to the Romans at that point. Well, she, she, or she was, was... Or at least she was on the verge of, of that change. She was a member it. of the Macedonian rulers of Egypt. She was the last great ruler of her of her lineage. Her father was not all that impressive uh, and actually had been tra- chased out of the country by one of his daughters. And it would only be Cleopatra who would return you know, a few years later to claim yeah. her seat on the throne. I do remember that it was her sister and brother who were originally on the throne at right. first. Eventually, though, she would, of course, fall into cahoots with uh, Julius, Caesar. Julius Caesar, and that right. would lead to a whole other episode. <laughs> oh, yes, indeed. <laughs> but I want to talk about the female rulers that existed before her. Please. Female rulers that existed thousands of years before her. Yeah, because we don't really think of, I mean, because we're all of, not all, but a good portion of us are from some sort of European descent, we don't really think of strong female leadership before at least the 1500s. Um, right. Here in America and in Western Europe, we have this very clear perception of a, of a ruling king as being that of male. And that's because that's what we've been exposed to in our culture and society. Uh, but the truth is, in Egypt, women were considered to be very equal to men. They had equal legal representation. You know, they had, uh, in many cases, therefore, legal rights, uh, the same as their male counterparts. And even though it was traditional for men to rule... It was traditional because Horus and Osiris were both men, and they were emulating the mythology. 
women still played an important role in that mythology, including Isis. And Isis, in the story of, of Horus, in the story of Osiris, upon the death of Osiris, uh, Isis becomes pregnant, and she gives birth to Osiris's child, who is exactly that, a child who is weak and vulnerable and cannot rule. And so his mother, in his place, becomes now this authority figure, now becomes this iconic figure. Yeah. And Which really kind of sets this, the template for how women would rule exactly, afterwards. Exactly. And one of the earliest examples that we have of this occurs in the very first dynasty of Egypt. There had only been four proper rulers of Egypt up to this point. Wow. So we're well, talking very early. Extremely early. And this woman who would then come in to rule in her own right uh, was by the name of Mernith, Neith being a, a keen essential figure in the Egyptian uh, 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 hierarchy of the gods. And Mernith was ruling for her young son, the pharaoh Den, who had an extremely long reign, uh, the longest of any of the first dynasty pharaohs, for at approximately 42 years. Wow. Yeah, and that is, of course, assuming that date is correct based off the Egyptian, ancient Egyptian sources that we have available, um, but it's probably pretty close. And she was key and important to laying that foundation, and existing then beyond the ascension of her you know, son's coming to power. Uh, she would live for a few years after that. But she assumed the role of regent. She was in charge of the country. She was making those decisions, and she was respected for it. Here was this mother of this god. Here was this person who was playing out that uh, role in their mythology. And here was a person who was uh, totally okay with letting her son then rule after. And that's the big distinction between Merneith. While she was never really recorded as a proper pharaoh on, the, on what are called the king's lists, uh, several points throughout Egyptian history, the pharaohs had uh, decided to go ahead and compile a list of their predecessors and then show their role within mm -hmm. that. Uh, it was a way of validating their own rule and acknowledging and respecting those who came before. But she certainly wouldn't be the only person to rule for a young pharaoh to be. But she, uh, <laughs> she gave up the kingship. She gave up the throne when it was appropriate for her to do so. Not everybody did that. <laughs> no, not at all. And that's a sign of humility, too. If you think about it at this time, you have to take care of your people because they will revolt against you if you don't take care of them. But if you take care of them, they'll let you do pretty much whatever you want, right. you know? And she could have maintained power for the rest of her life if she wanted to, but yet she didn't because she understood the significance of this obligation of honor. Uh, I see it as a, as a spiritual, like a moral obligation because she plays this role in reenacting the mythology, as you say. She would be dishonoring herself by main, by keeping up the role. Absolutely. Yeah. And she was the perfect person to do this. Her husband, who was also her brother, of course, so she was also raised in that, that same family, as was common among the pharaohs mm -hmm. of Egypt, to marry sisters and half-sisters and have them continue on the, the lineage, uh, keeping it all in the family, so to speak. She would have been raised right alongside her father and brother and understood the role and importance within the country. Uh, some women in Egypt went on even to become scribes. Even though it wasn't an official role for women in the schools, uh, because many scribes then graduated and became priests, and that was, again, something that was, in general, restricted to, to the men. Women, like they found a role in the temple, also found a role as, as scribes. And they would oftentimes learn from a brother or learn from a husband uh, because it was uh, exposed to them. Yeah, and this is not necessarily a sexist thing because most people in Egypt didn't know how to read or write. It was only, oh, yeah, only 2% of the population was so right. privileged. From what I remember, again, from the museum field trip, 
it was restricted to pretty much the priestly class and, and the royal family. Yeah, I remember what I said. Women were treated very, very equally within Egypt, but yeah. there were also these predefined roles, right, and expectations of what those should be. But there were also exceptions made, and exceptions were, in this case, okay. Okay, so we've talked about a, a situation where a woman ruled in the stead of her son. Yes. There's also a couple times where a woman ruled because her husband had passed and there was no heir apparent. That's right. And that brings us to my, my next person, Sobeknefru. Sobeknefru was a really interesting individual who was ruling essentially for her brother who had died. And now she was in charge of the country at a time when it was just the worst time for somebody to become in charge of the country. Egypt, this is a time uh, called the 12th Dynasty and during Egypt's Middle Kingdom, which was its kind of heyday, its golden period. But there had been some hard times at the end of the 12th Dynasty. There had been situations of famine and situations of disease. And as such, the economy was suffering. And it was uh, a difficult period. And when their pharaoh died, they had no clear successor. He never left any children behind to, to rule in his stead. Because and he was so, too old? or uh, They don't really... Uh, go into too much detail he didn't rule very long as pharaoh only a very short reign of i believe 10 years okay. or so I, I could be wrong it could be less than that actually so there wasn't a lot of time and uh we find that he could very well have been ill at the time but we do have uh, a situation there when sobek nefru is coming to save the day she's keeping her lineage going she's keeping her family from dying out uh but unfortunately it was uh too little too late yeah and it's so horrible because then after that, women have this reputation as being dynasty enders. And, uh, <laughs> More bad luck than anything. Yeah. And so then they, they actually fabricated a whole other pharaoh at the end of Egypt's sixth dynasty that had happened before this period uh, to explain its downfall. Wow. And its fall from grace. Uh, and, you know, this was done many, many years after the fact. This is uh, one of the many legacies of uh, Herodotus who... Yes, was an interesting historian, and I'm sure got some things right. But when it came to Egypt, uh, take what he says with a grain of right. salt. So here's what I'm wondering. The only monarchy that I can say I know anything about, and I'm really not an expert on it at all, but the only thing I, monarchy I can say I know anything about is the British monarchy. And I know in the, in the British monarchy, a dynasty, if you're to even call it that, ends when there is no, there's no heir within the same last name within the same right. immediate family to to take over so usually it's like a distant cousin who's a duke somewhere or whatever in one case it was the king of another country yeah <laughs> a couple of different times it was the king of another country distant cousin who then assumes the throne is that the case in egypt as well well that's how we categorize it today yeah well, how so what would be considered a dynasty change within egypt or did they even consider it dynasties they didn't. it was just a continuation it was labeled we, we had imposed on it yeah it, it is something that is totally fabricated by our perception of it today but we use those same rules that they use within you know the monarchies of europe to define uh the dynasties of egypt as well okay so we end a dynasty in our perception of egypt when exactly that when happens the, when the direct lineage breaks Correct. off but in egypt there was no such distinction they didn't see it in time periods they didn't see it as as uh an end they saw it as a continuation no matter right. what because i remember you saying that again back on the field trip uh, that with each new pharaoh, like time started over again in a way. Exactly. It was the pharaoh's responsibility, if you will, to keep the existence of the country going. If there was a pharaoh, if there was a king, then time would continue to exist. And they took this to the extreme in that when a new pharaoh came to be, the way that they dated 
important events or things that were going on was by the name of the king, uh, the year in which that pharaoh had been ruling, the season, there were four seasons, and then the month within that season. And that's how they went ahead and wrote out these documents and labels. And so if it was the first year of the pharaoh's reign, it was considered year one. They literally started over again. But because there was always a pharaoh before them, there was this continuation. And so everything would continue. But, you know, it went to the point where the pharaohs would tear down the palace of their predecessors and build a whole new one. That's why they built them out of mud brick. They didn't want them to be stone. Stone was considered a material for eternity. So temples would be more for stone. Yeah, because the temples were never changing. The pharaohs didn't have any direct connection to the pharaohs or to the temples. They would, of course, have their names engraved on them and what have you, and they would have scenes of them, uh, you know, engraved or painted. But um, they were still separate as a, as an entity as a whole. Right. Gotcha. Cool. So you'll find then. Quite a bit of time passes before we find another really dedicated female ruler. And this is a person who's accepted another co-regency. And it comes out of a very turbulent period in Egyptian history. So rather than this being uh, a situation where a woman was ending a dynasty, it's really a woman who's creating a dynasty. Uh, And her name was Amos Nefertari. Amos Nefertari was a very powerful woman. She oversaw the reunification of Egypt after Egypt had been invaded by a force to its north who had essentially taken up residence in uh, a very large portion of Lower Egypt, which again, as we said earlier, is located in the northern part of the country, and set up shop and had their own kings and adopted in many ways to Egyptian customs, but decided that they were the ones in charge and pushed these pharaohs back now to a place called Thebes in Egypt's south, which would now become its new uh, administrative and religious capital. And you will find that uh, after, you know, a little more than 100 years of being compliant with these people in the north, the 17th dynasty uh, now decided to take action. And you had a, a sequence of pharaohs who went and conducted warfare against these people to the north, who they called the Hyksos, and uh, eventually expelled them, and at great cost. Many of these pharaohs lost, lost their lives in battle. Uh, some of them have been found, their mummified remains, with enormous axe wounds in their heads uh, and arrows punctured through their bodies. And so you can see this was not a polite affair. This nope. was very dangerous. To the point where, you know, it was not uncommon then for the next pharaoh to be to be a child in its infancy, uh, not ready to take over yet because the subsequent generations had lost their lives unifying the country together. And therefore, you have this now Amos Nafatari taking over for her young son, uh, who would later become Amenhotep I. And he would lead Egypt's 18th dynasty. He would be the father of the most powerful, most productive, most wealthy expanse of Egyptian history, due to the fact that he had a strong mother. Very interesting. Now, I'm wondering, was there ever a point in time where the woman was the firstborn and was the rightful heir to the throne? The rightful heir was always the male heir. Okay, so even if there was a younger brother, he was he had dibs. He had dibs, yeah. Okay. And we see this actually happen quite often. So was there ever a time when the, the male heir died before the pharaoh did, and therefore the woman became in charge? Or was there, they always like say, well, let's find a man first. Let's find a man first. Well, in the case of Sobek Nefru, as we had outlined, that was the case. Also, in the case of probably Egypt's most successful female ruler, uh, Hatshepsut. Okay. Uh, and I find Hepshatsut to be fascinating. 
she's this iconic, very polarizing figure from Egyptian history because she has this mystique about her. She has this true sense of domineering power, not the likes of any female ruler before her, and really even compared to Cleopatra after her. She's the one who's really depicted even wearing the beard. Like she had, she, right. she wore the prosthetic beard to really signify her power as, no, I'm the pharaoh. Yeah, I'm a woman, but I'm the pharaoh too, you know? She's not a, she's not a substitute. She had a, a very beloved father, uh, the I. And we know this, that they had a very strong connection and relationship because of the care and attention that she had given to his mortuary temple after his death and to his tomb. She guaranteed that he would exist as comfortably as possible for all of eternity. And this was an example of, of true devotion and love. And she did the same ex- for her half-brother, who was also uh, her husband, who would rule after the reign of her father. A very successful reign for her father, mind you. Not so much for her brother. Her brother, Thutmose II, died relatively young. He had only been on the throne for a short time. Uh, and he did have an heir, not by her, but by another queen consort, uh, a lesser queen, who she would go on and raise as her own son. And this was Thutmose III, also sometimes called the Napoleon of Egypt. <laughs> he was a very powerful very warlike pharaoh, one of the first true warrior pharaohs who would lay that foundation for people like Ramesses to really look at and be inspired by and go and do what they did. And you find that Thutmose II left this this vacuum behind. He left this series of successful reigns, and now there was a child who was in charge. And as was tradition, as we had seen earlier, his now stepmother and his uh, and the next uh, region of the country will would assume power. And that's exactly what Hepshatsu did. She fulfilled her role. But she did it really well. I mean, she expanded Egypt and laid this foundation for Thutmose III to become the pharaoh that he would be because of all the hard work that she had done. And she reigned for 22 years. So she wasn't just a regent. She was pharaoh. She was Per-a-a. That's what the Egyptians called their rulers, the Great House. That's where the word pharaoh, the Greek word pharaoh, is derived from. And she was, in the truest sense, the great house. She restored trade routes that had been gone for over 100 years. She took expeditions as far south as the Sudan into the area and the kingdom of Punt. She built more monuments than hardly anyone else in her and her direct dynasty. I mean, she constructed one of the largest mortuary temples in existence. And this is um, all done by a woman, a very powerful woman. How does she validate her rule then? And you, you touched on it in a, a little bit earlier. Well, I mean, I guess there'd be a couple ways. One is that she has the connection to someone who was or will be Pharaoh, but also she's fulfilling an important role, right? If the male Pharaoh is assuming the role of Horus, then she has to be assuming the role of Isis right. in that case. And what she's really needing to do is not just validate her role, role as regent. She's done with regent. Now she's ready to take on more responsibility. Yeah. And she actually declares herself to be pharaoh. And she so uses, she uses this, the masculine symbol of the beard. That's right. right she actually said. now depicts herself as a man. And so when we see statues of Hepshatsu, we see her shirtless, as was not uncommon among Egyptian statues. But in this time period, it was not uncommon for uh, upper-class women to be depicted with a covering of their breasts. She's showing herself shirtless, just like a masculine figure would. She wears the nemes, okay? And her breasts are considerably smaller. 
she makes them smaller in her statues, so she does look more male-like. She still has so a very that was feminine more face. A, that might have been more licensed than taken by a sculptor, because we don't know for sure. Oh, she commissioned these statues, yes. and she so, wanted them as such. I was going to say. This was a way of validating her rule as a pharaoh. I just I, She's literally saying, I'm one of the boys. I don't I don't want to cheapen her, her significant role, but I just have this image of like these foreign dignitaries coming to Egypt and saying, oh yes, you're about to meet the pharaoh, and they have no idea that it's a woman, <laughs> or that she's topless. <laughs> and the entire time, they're distracted. It's like... Your Highness, how did the how did the negotiations go? Oh, oh very well, very well. <laughs> I had their attention completely and totally. <laughs> In fact, uh, you know, I, I think there must be a case of lockjaw going around because their mouths were all stuck open. Uh, no, it's nice to say we got everything we wanted. <laughs> <laughs> when she was uh, walking about, I'm sure she was covered. I, I don't think there was. I don't think she was walking about topless all the time. Uh, this was in her statues only. Okay. Uh, but my point being... Would have made quite a statement about it. <laughs> <laughs> would have. Uh, and your point being, she she took her job very seriously. Yeah. And she was going to do whatever she needed to to show the country that she was in charge. And the temple construction that she had done, the obelisks that she had erected around the country, her own tomb and the care and attendance that she had given to the mortuary temple that she had constructed at Dar al-Bahare, uh, just shows what the kind of ruler she was. And it's so fascinating, because after her death, and when the III, who was now, you know, not just a kid anymore, he was, you know, in his late 20s, early 30s, he could have been ruling the country for a full decade beforehand, but didn't, because his stepmother, because Hapshatsu, was doing a good job. So did she die as Pharaoh? She died as Pharaoh. Wow. So there was that much respect for her that he, even her son or stepson, was like, "No, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ride it out." Yeah, and this is why I'm so confused when archaeologists, <laughs> for the past few years, have suggested that Tutmos the Third was the reason why Hapshatsu was erased from history. Because honestly, she probably took it one step too far for the normal conservative viewpoint of Egypt. She was setting a precedent that I don't think some people wanted to be set. It was fine to be regent, but to call yourself pharaoh, to depict yourself as being masculine, to show yourself in your mortuary temple being born from the god Kanum, and taking on those roles and responsibilities and being proud of being pharaoh, that was something that probably took it too far. Do I th- think that her beloved stepson, this person who, you know, was taught by her, lived by her side, was raised as her child would treat her in such a disrespectful way to erase her from history, thus erasing her from existence? Yeah. No, I don't believe it. And the evidence that's come out to suggest this is, after the rather long reign of the Third, that is when you start finding the eraser of Hepshatsut. And it's all done by the high priesthood of Amun, who was very closely connected to the kingship, and very conservative. And in the III's latter years, when he was ill and in decline, is when they took this opportunity, when they had some liberty in the country, they went ahead and started this program to erase Hapshatsut's name, to face many of her statues, and try to erase her from her monuments in history. But they didn't succeed. Even though they had destroyed many of her statues, she was such a prolific builder that there is not a major museum in this world today that does not have a statue of Hapshatsut. There you go. Sometimes you just you can't stifle the power that a person carries with them. I, I want to touch on something real quick before we leave Hepshatsut, and I know we could do a whole episode on her because she is just a fascinating, fascinating. Figure. Absolutely, because you bring up 
she was pharaoh she assumed male power yeah not that that female power was any less but she assumed the role of male but in this in the society yeah. in, the, in the normalcy of it all it was very unusual and i see two other parallels to that i see with queen isabella yeah. Uh, in Spain. She Absolutely. referred to herself as King Isabella. Yeah. Because she saw herself as a female king. And I also think of Elizabeth I in England, too. Who were all female kings. Yeah, yeah. In they, that sense. And the loose name for the queen, the queen was she was the female king because she had such a tight grip. She knew how well to politically deal with parliament and deal with the people who really had the power in the country, like a, a seasoned, educated king would have been, that it goes to show that these are three women we're still talking about. Yeah, to, absolutely. You know, yeah, even thousands of years later. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I, I will mention something real quick because you had brought the subject earlier when we were prepping for the show, and you had asked, would her role as queen then involved a consort? Not unlike the the monarchy of Europe as it is right now. With very few exceptions, you usually have one reigning monarch, whether they're a king or queen, and then a consort. Very few king consorts have ever existed. Yeah. I think really it was only Scotland that did it, but um, prince consort or princess consort in some countries. Well, look at England right now. Right. In England right now, there is the prince consort, right? And actually, Queen Victoria wanted to make, uh, of course, going back a few generations, she wanted to make Prince Albert king. And the parliament refused. Yeah. So, you know, it's not for lack of trying. <laughs> it's just tradition. Right? Yeah. It gets in the way. Uh, in the case of Hapshatsu, though, this is a question that has been brought up before. Mm-hmm. Would she have taken a man to love? And what would that have mean? Would that mean that he would then have to become pharaoh? Or would that mean that any children that they had together who would become king? Oh, or, or gotcha. Uh, because he wouldn't have had a, a royal birth because there were no more male members of her family. I mean, if she picked anybody, it would have to be someone from like the military or someone from a priestly class. Yeah. And she did have a daughter. Her and Thutmose II had a daughter. Unfortunately, she, as far as we know, did not live far into adulthood if, into adulthood at all. She was probably into her young adolescence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she had a steward who was very chief and important to Hepshatsut, who was key and responsible for organizing her building projects, and also, based on his tomb, very much caring of her daughter. His name was Sitamun. And Sitamun is this uh, interesting figure because so many people have wanted to romanticize the relationship between Sitamun and Hepshatsut because of the care and attention that was put into the construction of his tomb. And there are some images that depict Sitamun and Hepshatsut in a very caring fashion. To suggest that the relationship was sexual, though, it's very difficult to say. It's impossible to say. Right. But that didn't stop people from speculating in ancient Egypt, including the people who were building her mortuary temple. Because we know from where they used to take their breaks and write graffiti on the walls that they thought somebody was having sex with Hapshatsut because they drew a picture of it. Gotcha. This is some of the first pornographic graffiti ever found in the world. I'm serious. It shows a female ruler, so a ruler wearing the nemes, but with breasts and a vagina, having sex with a guy. Yeah. <laughs> it was probably an insult, I imagine. I don't think it could be interpreted any other yeah. way. But um, that's, that's pretty wild to see a little bit of gossip going on around this, right. uh, this unique king. Well, I mean, Queen Elizabeth had a lover too, right? Even yeah. though she never took a husband, so... I'm not saying that she should. I'm just saying that it's pretty incredible that, you know, there was even that kind of murmuring and, and chatting. We think of the ancient world as being very Refined. Yeah. yeah, it really wasn't. <laughs> yeah. People behaved the same way. Oh, yeah, they did. In many ways that oh, they, yeah, did they did thousands of years ago. Do you have anything else you want to add? You have I, one more person? I actually have one more female ruler. You have one more female? 
Oh my god. I know. Okay, so, here we go. Again, this is this is a lot more than people really recognize. And no, and I don't have a whole lot on her because there really isn't a whole lot to talk about. But we do have um the Queen Tuasaret. And Tuasaret is really very interesting because at the end of Egypt's nineteenth dynasty, right, so this is the time of Ramesses, right, and his famous dynasty, the Ramesside kings, you found a, a power struggle going on at the very end. And you had a, a pharaoh by the name of Siptah. And Siptah was a son of Seti II, who himself was a son of Merintah, who himself was a son of Ramesses II. Okay, just to kind of put it into context for you, right? A lot of members of this family. And uh, he had married a sister. He had died. And then left for at least the last year, maybe a little bit longer of his reign, in charge. Now was his sister and, and wife consort. And this Queen Tuasaret was dealing with some really hostile forces in Egypt at the time. In fact, her, her chancellor, uh, a gentleman by the name of Bey, was executed uh, for treason. And we know that her successor, Setnakahet, decided that he was going to strike her you know, memory from history and try to erase the last little bits of her family that were there and rule as a ruler of the 20th dynasty. Remember we talked about Ramesses III and how those Ramesses all took the names of the other Ramesses? This was that power struggle. Right. This was that transition point that was going on. And it's so sad because, you know, Tual Suarit, I- I'm sure that she had plenty to do. I'm sure she would have been a fine ruler in her own right if she had really just been given the chance. So we don't know exactly what happened to her. We don't know how she died. We just know that uh, her reign kind of abruptly ends. And so one could even surmise that it was a coup that occurred and that uh, she was deposed from power and as such was born the 20th dynasty. That's, again, a bit more guesswork. So unfortunately, I wish I had a little bit more about Tuasaret, but uh, I don't have much more for her. I don't think um, we're short of any insightful information from this episode. (laughs) I gotta say, going into this, I was expecting us to talk a lot about uh, male pharaohs and what we've seen is we've seen this the impact that these female leaders have had. Some call themselves pharaohs, some were just the regent, the queen, whatever you want to call them. And yet their influence has carried on to the great pharaohs that yeah. you mentioned. It was because of their influence and the, the effects that they had on the country that who preceded them did much better things. Sure, if it wasn't for Merneith, the Egyptian dynasties may have ended right there. They may not have had an opportunity to continue. You know, Sobek Nefru kind of gets the the short end of the stick because it wasn't her fault the dynasty ended. It was just that was the climate in the country at the time, and that's how things happened. But, you know, she was doing everything she could to continue her family's name, which is very honorable. Amos Nefertari. Here is this person who's coming out of all the sadship and suffering and pain and warfare of a t- like that she had never seen in her life, yet she was strong enough to continue to raise a child and raise that child with values and an ideal that would lead to Egypt's most powerful dynasty. Hapshatsu. Look at Napoleon III, okay? Or, um, or not Napoleon III, sorry. The proverbial Napoleon III. <laughs> the proverbial Napoleon III, um, uh, Tutmos III. Uh, you know, he wouldn't have been the pharaoh that he was if it wasn't for his stepmother. And Tuauseret, here she was trying to keep the country together against these odds, against people who wanted her and her family dead um, so that they could assume power and and take over the country. And yet she continued to hold out and did so as much as she could. And of course, Cleopatra. 
I, I don't want to devalue Cleopatra in this episode. I, I don't want to talk about her because we just don't have enough time. Yeah. Uh, and because that, you know, the story of Cleopatra itself and herself and how that story has evolved and changed really deserves in its own right an episode. And I think we, we'll get to that yeah. in the future. We can probably use that as a bridge to get to Rome because we have yet to talk about Rome. And I know that's one we've been we've been saving. Yeah. You know, I just want to clarify, though, that I'm not diminishing Cleopatra's importance. Uh, I just feel like there are a lot of other female rulers that need to be talked about, too. Cool. And it's actually very inspiring for women and men in our culture to see these examples. Absolutely. So it's great. And as always, sir, it's, been, it's a pleasure. Um, for those of our listeners out there, as we usually say, Eric, what do we usually say? Uh, don't take our word for it. Don't take our word for it, right? You can find all this information at the library, of course. At your, if you can get to an Egyptian museum, please do so. Do it. That is the best way. I learned more, I think, from that trip. And I've been to the, that museum a few times. <laughs> I learned more from seeing it and hearing about it than I would have been reading it from a book. You know, For me, it comes alive that in that sense. And there are even museums that will allow you to touch the artifacts. There are certain pieces that are allowed to be touched because of they're made of stone. Um, please don't go out there and just start thumbing everything in museums. That's not good. But they also have pieces that they sometimes bring out um, for artifact handling, where you, you, know, you put on protective gloves and you're able to experience these pieces from history. When I worked at uh, the Rosicrucian, that was my specialty. I can't imagine how many faces I saw of children who were just absolutely blown away by the fact that they were holding something that was, in one case, uh, a piece from Egypt's first pyramid. You know, it was, it was experiences like that that exist in museums today that I encourage those of you who listen to go seek them out, find them. You could have experiences like that in museums. They're amazing places. And of course, there's so many resources online and in the form of amazing books. There's a wonderful book out there called Hapshatsut. The Female Pharaoh, written by uh, Joyce Tidensley. And she is, um, you know, one of the foremost leading uh, experts in the field of Egyptology. Uh, a truly amazing person. I've had a chance to meet her before. And she is uh, she is so cool. So, Joyce, if you're listening, uh, Dr. Tidensley, just want to say hi. <laughs> and also, please, have... our listeners, go and, 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 and read her book. It's excellent. Can I just say, I am continually impressed with, the, with your credentials. <laughs> Like, I knew you worked at the museum, but I didn't know you've rubbed elbows with some of the foremost authorities in this field. That's that's incredible. I have met uh, Dr. Donald Redford, who has done the leading work at Armana, the capital city of Akhenaten. Um, I very, very briefly met my my hero, uh, Salim Ekram, uh, who is a four-leading expert on mummies in Egypt. Uh, I doubt she would even remember me. It was quite literally, oh my god, oh my god. Oh my God! Hi, can you sign my book? Oh my God! <laughs> <laughs> you became a fifteen-year-old girl. All of a sudden. Yep. Uh, I met uh, Dr. Mark Laner. No offense to our fifteen-year-old. Oh, female absolutely listeners. not. Uh, I met uh, Dr. Mark Laner, who is again a uh, authority on pyramids. You see him on television quite a bit. He's done a lot of Nova specials and Discovery Channel specials. Uh, I had him sign two of my copies of the Complete Pyramid Guide. And uh, those are some prize pieces in my collection. Uh, well, yeah, I've, I've, I guess I've met a couple Egyptologists in my day. Folks, you can also uh, follow us on our Twitter account at Nerdonomy. And uh, please, go to our website, nerdonomy.com. Check it's, it. It's beautiful. And it gets more and more beautiful all the time. Yeah. Uh, we've always got cool new stuff up on there. So go check it out. And uh, you can contact us any other number of ways from our website. And Eric, uh, as as it is always a pleasure, um, and we will uh, we'll talk soon. And you guys have a wonderful week. All right. Thank you very much, folks. Goodbye. Mm-hmm.